Part Four, Chapters One to Two of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One: Shellfish Languages Again. Miranda, the Purple Bird of Paradise, had prophesied rightly when she had foretold a good spell of weather. For three weeks, the good ship Curlew ploughed her way through smiling seas before a steady, powerful wind. I suppose most real sailors would have found this part of the voyage dull, but not I. As we got further south and further west, the face of the sea seemed different every day, and all the little things of a voyage which an old hand would have hardly bothered to notice were matters of great interest for my eager eyes. We did not pass many ships. When we did see one, the doctor would get out his telescope, and we would all take a look at it. Sometimes he would signal to it, asking for news, by hauling up the little colored flags upon the mast, and the ship would signal back to us in the same way. The meaning of all the signals was printed in a book which the doctor kept in the cabin. He told me it was the language of the sea, and that all ships could understand it, whether they be English, Dutch, or French. Our greatest happening during those first weeks was passing an iceberg. When the sun shone on it, it burst into a hundred colors, sparkling like a jeweled palace in a fairy story. Through the telescope we saw a mother polar bear, with a cub sitting on it, watching us. The doctor recognized her as one of the bears who had spoken to him when he was discovering the North Pole. So he sailed the ship up close and offered to take her and her baby on to the Kurlu, if she wished it. But she only shook her head, thanking him. She said it would be far too hot for the cub on the deck of our ship, with no ice to keep his feet cool. It had been, indeed, a very hot day, but the nearness of that great mountain of ice made us all turn up our coat collars and shiver with the cold. During those quiet, peaceful days, I improved my reading and writing a great deal with the doctor's help. I got on so well that he let me keep the ship's log. This is a big book kept on every ship, a kind of diary in which the number of miles run, the direction of your course, and everything else that happens is written down. The doctor, too, in what spare time he had, was nearly always writing in his notebooks. I used to peep into these sometimes, now that I could read, but I found it hard to work to make out the doctor's handwriting. Many of these notebooks seemed to be about sea things. There were six thick ones filled with notes and sketches of different seaweeds and there were others on seabirds, others on sea-worms, others on seashells. They were all some day to be rewritten, printed and bound like regular books. One afternoon we saw floating around us great quantities of stuff that looked like dead grass. The doctor told me it was gulfweed. A little further on it became so thick that it covered all the water as far as the eye could reach. It made the curlew look as though she were moving across a meadow instead of sailing the Atlantic. Crawling about upon this weed, many crabs were to be seen, and the sight of them reminded the doctor of his dream of learning the language of the shellfish. He fished several of these crabs up with a net and put them in his listening tank to see if he could understand them. Among the crabs, he also caught a strange-looking chubby little fish, which he told me was called a silver fidget. After he had listened to the crabs for a while, with no success, he put the fidget back into the tank and began to listen to that. I had to leave him at this moment and go and attend to some duties on the deck. But presently I heard him below shouting for me to come down again. 
Stubbins! He cried as soon as he saw me. A most extraordinary thing. Quite unbelievable. I'm not sure whether I'm dreaming. Can't believe my own senses. Hi, hi, hi. Why, doctor? I said. What is it? What's the matter? The fidget. He whispered, pointing with a trembling finger to the listening tank in which the little round fish was still swimming quietly. He talks English. And, and, and he whistles tunes. English tunes. Talks English? I cried. Whistles? Why, it's impossible. It's a fact, said the doctor, white in the face with excitement. It's only a few words scattered, with no particular sense to them, all mixed up with his own language, which I can't make out yet, but they're English words, unless there's something very wrong with my hearing, and the tune he whistles. It's as plain as anything. Always the same tune. Now you listen, and tell me what you make of it. Tell me everything you hear. Don't miss a word. I went to the glass tank upon the table, while the doctor grabbed a notebook and a pencil. Undoing my collar, I stood upon the empty packing case he had been using for a stand and put my right ear down under the water. For some moments, I detected nothing at all, except with my dry ear, the heavy breathing of the doctor as he waited, all stiff and anxious for me to say something. At last, from within the water, sounding like a child singing miles and miles away, I heard an unbelievably thin, small voice. Ah, I said. What is it? Asked the doctor in a hoarse, trembling whisper. What does he say? I can't quite make it out. I said. It's mostly in some strange fish language. Oh, but wait a minute. Yes, now I get it. No smoking. My, here's a queer one. Popcorn and picture postcards here. This way out. Don't spit. What funny things to say, Doctor. Oh, but wait. Now he's whistling the tune. What tune is it? Gasped the Doctor. John Peel. Aha! Cried the Doctor. That's what I made it out to be. And he wrote furiously in his notebook. I went on listening. This is most extraordinary. The Doctor kept muttering to himself as his pencil went wiggling over the page. Most extraordinary but frightfully thrilling. I wonder where he... Here's some more. I cried. Some more English. The big tank needs cleaning. That's all. Now he's talking fish talk again. The big tank? The doctor murmured, frowning in a puzzled kind of way. I wonder where on earth he learned. Then he bounded up out of his chair. I have it! He yelled. This fish has escaped from an aquarium. Why, of course. Look at the kind of things he has learned. Picture postcards. They always sell them in aquariums. Don't spit, no smoking, this way out, the things the attendants say. And then, my, here's a queer one. That's the kind of thing that people exclaim when they look into the tanks. It all fits. There's no doubt about it, Stubbins. We have here a fish who has escaped from captivity. And it's quite possible, not certain by any means, but quite possible that I may now, through him, be able to establish communication with the shellfish. This is a great piece of luck. Chapter 2 The Fidget Story
Well, now that he was started once more upon his old hobby of the shellfish languages, there was no stopping the doctor. He worked right through the night. A little after midnight, I fell asleep in a chair. About two in the morning, Bumpo fell asleep at the wheel, and for five hours the curlew was allowed to drift where she liked. But still, John Doolittle worked on, trying his hardest to understand the fidget's language, struggling to make the fidget understand him. When I woke up, it was broad daylight again. The doctor was still standing at the listening tank, looking as tired as an owl and dreadfully wet. But on his face there was a proud and happy smile. Stubbins, he said as soon as he saw me stir. I've done it. I've got the key to the fidget's language. It's a frightfully difficult language, quite different from anything I ever heard. The only thing it reminds me of, slightly, is ancient Hebrew. It isn't shellfish, but it's a big step towards it. Now, the next thing. I want you to take a pencil and a fresh notebook and write down everything I say. The fidget has promised to tell me the story of his life. I will translate it into English, and you put it down in the book. Are you ready? Once more, the doctor lowered his ear beneath the level of the water. And as he began to speak, I started to write. And this is the story that the fidget told us. Thirty Months in an Aquarium I was born in the Pacific Ocean, close to the coast of Chile. I was one of a family of 2,510. Soon after our mother and father left us, we youngsters got scattered. The family was broken up by a herd of whales who chased us. I and my sister, Clipper, she was my favourite sister, had a very narrow escape for our lives. As a rule, whales are not very hard to get away from if you are good at dodging, if you've only got a quick swerve. But this one that came after Clipper and myself was a very mean whale. Every time he lost us under a stone or something, he'd come back and hunt and hunt till he rooted us out into the open again. I never saw such a nasty, persevering brute. Well, we shook him at last, though not before he had worried us for hundreds of miles northward, up to the west coast of South America. But luck was against us that day. While we were resting and trying to get our breath, another family of fidgets came rushing by, shouting, Come on! Swim for your lives! The dogfish are coming! Now, dogfish are particularly fond of fidgets. We are, you might say, their favourite food. And for that reason, we always keep away from deep, muddy waters. What's more, dogfish are not easy to escape from. They are terribly fast and clever hunters. So up we had to jump, and on again. After we had gone a few more hundred miles, we looked back and saw that the dogfish were gaining on us. So we turned into a harbour. It happened to be one on the west coast of the United States, here we guessed and hoped the dogfish would not be likely to follow us. As it happened, they didn't even see us turn in, but dashed on northward, and we never saw them again. I hope they froze to death in the Arctic seas. But, as I said, luck was against us that day. While I and my sister were cruising gently round, the ships anchored in the harbour looking for orange peels, a great delicacy with us. Swoop! Bang! We were caught in a net. We struggled for all we were worth, but it was no use. 
The net was small-meshed and strongly made. Kicking and flipping, we were hauled up the side of the ship and dumped down on the deck, high and dry in a blazing noonday sun. Here, a couple of old men in whiskers and spectacles leaned over us, making strange sounds. Some codling had got caught in the net at the same time as we were. These the old men threw back into the sea. But us, they seemed to think very precious. They put us carefully into a large jar, and after they had taken us on shore, they went to a big house and changed us from the jar into glass boxes full of water. This house was on the edge of the harbour, and a small stream of seawater was made to flow through the glass tank so we could breathe properly. Of course, we had never lived inside glass walls before, and at first we kept on trying to swim through them, and got our noses awfully sore, bumping the glass at full speed. Then followed weeks and weeks of weary idleness. They treated us well, so far as they knew how. The old fellows in spectacles came and looked at us proudly twice a day, and saw that we had the proper food to eat, the right amount of light, and that the water was not too hot or too cold. But, oh, the dullness of that life! It seemed like we were a kind of show. At a certain hour, every morning, the big doors of the house were thrown open, and everybody in the city who had nothing special to do came in and looked at us. There were other tanks filled with different kinds of fishes all round the walls of the big room, and the crowds would go from tank to tank, looking in at us through the glass, with their mouths open like half-witted flounders. We got so sick of it that we used to open our mouths back at them, and this they seemed to think highly comical. One day my sister said to me, Thank you, brother, that these strange creatures who have captured us can talk. Surely, said I, have you not noticed that some talk with the lips only, some with the whole face, and yet others discourse with the hands? When they come quite close to the glass, you can hear them. Listen. At that moment, a female, larger than the rest, pressed her nose up against the glass, pointed at me, and said to her young behind her, Oh, look, here's a queer one. And then we noticed that they nearly always said this when they looked in. And for a long time, we thought that such was the whole extent of the language, this being a people of but few ideas. To help pass away the weary hours, we learnt it by heart. Oh, look, here's a queer one. But we never got to know what it meant. Other phrases, however, we did get the meaning of. And we even learned to read a little in man talk. Many big signs there were, set up upon the walls, and when we saw that the keeper stopped the people from spitting and smoking, pointed to the signs angrily and read them out loud, we knew that these writings signified, no smoking and don't spit. Then in the evenings, after the crowd had gone, the same aged male with one leg of wood swept up the peanut shells with a broom every night, and while he was doing so, he always whistled the same tune to himself. This melody we rather liked, and we learned that too by heart, thinking it was part of the language. Thus a whole year went by in this dismal place. Some days new fishes were brought in to the other tanks, and other days old fishes were taken out. At first we had hoped we would only be kept here for a while, and that after we had been looked at sufficiently, we would be returned to freedom and the sea. But as month after month went by, and we were left undisturbed, our hearts grew heavy within our prison walls of glass, 
and we spoke to one another less and less. One day, when the crowd was thickest in the big room, a woman with a red face fainted from the heat. I watched through the glass, and saw that the rest of the people got highly excited, though to me it did not seem to be a matter of very great importance. They threw cold water on her and carried her out into the open air. This made me think mightily, and presently a great idea burst upon me. Sister, I said, turning to poor Clipper, who was sulking at the bottom of our prison, trying to hide behind the stone from the stupid gaze of the children who thronged about our tank. Supposing that we pretended we were sick, do you think they would take us also from this stuffy house? Brother, she said warily, that they might do so, but most likely they would throw us onto a rubbish heap, where we would die in the hot sun. But, said I, why should they go abroad to seek a rubbish heap, when the harbour is so close? While we were being brought here, I saw men throwing their rubbish into the water. If they would only throw us also there, we could quickly reach the sea. The sea, murmured poor Clipper, with a faraway look in her eyes. She had fine eyes, had my sister, Clipper. How like a dream it sounds, the sea. Oh, brother, will we ever swim in it again, think you? Every night as I lie awake on the floor of this evil-smelling dungeon, I hear its hearty voice ringing in my ears. How I have longed for it, just to feel it once again the nice, big, wholesome homeliness of it all. To jump, just to jump from the crest of an Atlantic wave, laughing in the trade wind spindrift, down into the blue-green swirling trough. To chase the shrimps on a summer evening, when the sky is red and the lights all pink within the foam. To lie on the top, in the doldrums noonday calm, and warm your tummy in the tropic sun. To wander hand in hand once more, through the giant seaweed forests of the Indian Ocean, seeking the delicious eggs of the pop-pop. To play hide-and-seek among the castles of the coral towns, with their pearl and jasper windows, spangling the floor of the Spanish main. To picnic in the anemone meadows dim blue and lilac grey that lie in the lowlands beyond the South Sea garden, to throw somersaults on the springy sponge-beds of the Mexican Gulf, to poke about among the dead ships and see what wonders and adventures lie inside, and then, on winter nights, when the northeaster whips the water into froth, to swoop down and down to get away from the cold, down to where the water's warm and dark, down and still down till we spy the twinkle of the fire eels far below where our friends and cousins sit chatting round the council grotto chatting brother over the news and gossip of the sea oh. and then she broke down completely sniffling oh, stop it i said you make me homesick oh, look here let's pretend we're sick or, or better still let's pretend we're dead and see what happens. If they throw us into a rubbish heap, and we fry in the sun, we'll not be much worse off than we are here in this smelly prison. What do you say? Will you risk it? I will, she said, and gladly. So next morning, two fidgets were found by the keeper, floating on the top of the water in their tank, stiff and dead. We gave a mighty good imitation of dead fish, although I say it myself, the keeper ran and got the old gentleman with spectacles and whiskers. They threw up their hands in horror when they saw us. 
lifting us carefully out of the water, they laid us on wet cloths. That was the hardest part of all. If you're a fish and get taken out of the water, you have to keep opening and shutting your mouth to breathe at all, and even that you can't keep up for long. And all this time, we had to stay stiff as sticks and breathe silently through half-closed lips. Well, the old fellows poked us and felt us and pinched us till I thought they'd never be done. Then, when their backs were turned a moment, a wretched cat got up on the table and nearly ate us. Luckily, the old man turned round in time and shooed her away. You may be sure, though, that we took a couple of good gulps of air while they weren't looking, and that was the only thing that saved us from choking. I wanted to whisper to Clipper to be brave and stick it out, but I couldn't even do that, because, as you know, most kinds of fish talk cannot be heard, not even a shout, unless you're underwater. Then, just as we were about to give it up and let on that we were alive, one of the old men shook his head sadly, lifted us up, and carried us out of the building. Now for it, I thought to myself. We'll soon know our fate. Liberty or the garbage can. Outside, to our unspeakable horror, he made straight for a large ash barrel, which stood against the wall on the other side of the yard. Most happily for us, however, while he was crossing this yard, a very dirty man with a wagon and horses drove up and took the ash barrel away. I suppose it was his property. Then the old man looked around for some other place to throw us. He seemed about to cast us upon the ground. But he evidently thought that this would make the yard untidy, and he desisted. The suspense was terrible. He moved outside the yard gate, and my heart sank once more, as I saw that he now intended to throw us in the gutter of the roadway. But fortune was indeed with us that day. A large man in blue clothes and silver buttons stopped him in the nick of time. Evidently, from the way the large man lectured and waved a short, thick stick, it was against the rules of the town to throw dead fish in the streets. At last, to our inutterable joy, the old man turned and moved off with us towards the harbour. He walked so slowly, muttering to himself all the way, and watching the man in blue out of the corner of his eye, that I wanted to bite his finger to make him hurry up. Both Clipper and I were actually at our last gasp. Finally, he reached the sea wall, and giving us one last sad look, he dropped us into the waters of the harbour. Never had we realised anything like the thrill of that moment, as we felt the salt wetness close over our heads. With one flick of our tails, we came to life again. The old man was so surprised that he fell right into the water, almost on top of us. From this, he was rescued by a sailor with a boat hook, and the last we saw of him, the man in blue was dragging him away by the coat collar, lecturing him again. Apparently, it was also against the rules of the town to throw dead fish into the harbour. But we? What time or thought had we for his troubles? We were free! In lightning leaps, in curving spurts, in crazy zigzags, whooping, shrieking with delight, we sped for home and the open sea. <sighs> that is all of my story, and I will now as I promised last night, try to answer any questions you may ask about the sea, on condition that I am set at liberty as soon as you have done. Is there any part of the sea deeper than that known as the Nero Deep? I mean the one near the island of Guam. 
Why, certainly. There's one much deeper than that near the mouth of the Amazon River. But it's small and hard to find. We call it the Deep Hole. And there's another in the Antarctic Sea. Can you talk any shellfish language yourself? No, not a word. We regular fishes don't have anything to do with the shellfish. We consider them a low class. But when you're near them, can you hear the sound they make, talking? I mean, without necessarily understanding what they say. Only with the very largest ones. Shellfish have such weak, small voices, it is almost impossible for any but their own kind to hear them. But with the bigger ones, it is different. They make a sad, booming noise, rather like an iron pipe being knocked with a stone, only not nearly so loud, of course. I am most anxious to get down to the bottom of the sea, to study many things. But we land animals, as you no doubt know, are unable to breathe underwater. Have you any ideas that might help me? I think that for both your difficulties, the best thing for you to do would be to try and get hold of the great glass sea snail. Ah, uh, who or what is the great glass sea snail? He is an enormous saltwater snail, one of the Winkle family, but as large as a big house. He talks quite loudly when he speaks, but this is not often. He can go to any part of the ocean at all depths because he doesn't have to be afraid of any creature in the sea. His shell is made of transparent mother of pearl so that you can see through it, but it's thick and strong. When he is out of his shell and he carries it empty on his back, there is room in it for a wagon and a pair of horses. He has been seen carrying his food in it when travelling. I feel that that is just the creature I have been looking for. He could take me and my assistant inside his shell, and we could explore the deepest depths in safety. Do you think you could get him for me? Alas, no. I would willingly if I could. But he is hardly ever seen by ordinary fish. He lives at the bottom of the deep hole and seldom comes out. And into the deep hole, the lower waters of which are muddy, fishes such as we are afraid to go. Dear me, that's a terrible disappointment. Are there many of this kind of snail in the sea? Oh no, he is the only one in existence, since his second wife died, long, long ago. He is the last of the giant shellfish. He belongs to past ages, when the whales were land animals and all that. They say, he is over 70,000 years old. Good gracious! What wonderful things you could tell me! I do wish I could meet him. Were there any more questions you wish to ask me? This water in your tank is getting quite warm and sickly. I'd like to be put back into the sea as soon as you can spare me. Just one more thing. When Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic in 1492, he threw overboard two copies of his diary sealed up in barrels. One of them was never found. It must have sunk. I would like to get it for my library. Do you happen to know where it is? Yes, I do. That too is in the deep hole. When the barrel sank, the currents drifted it northwards down what we call the Orinoco Slope, till it finally disappeared into the deep hole. If it was any other part of the sea, I'd try and get it for you, but not there. Well, that is all, I think. I hate to put you back into the sea, because I know that as soon as I do, I'll think of a hundred other questions I wanted to ask you. But I must keep my promise. Would you care for anything before you go? It seems a cold day, 
some cracker crumbs or something. No, I won't stop. All I want just at present is fresh seawater. I cannot thank you enough for all the information you have given me. You have been very helpful and patient. Pray do not mention it. It has been a real pleasure to be of assistance to the great John Doolittle. You are, as of course you know, already quite famous among the better class of fishes. Goodbye, and good luck to you, to your ship, and to all your plans. The doctor carried the listening tank to a porthole, opened it, and emptied the tank into the sea. Goodbye, he murmured as a faint splash reached us from without. I dropped my pencil on the table and leaned back with a sigh. My fingers were so stiff with writer's cramp that I felt as though I should never be able to open my hand again. But I at least had had a night's sleep. As for the poor doctor, he was so weary that he had hardly put the tank back upon the table and dropped into a chair when his eyes closed and he began to snore. In the passage outside, Polynesia scratched angrily at the door. I rose and let her in. A nice state of affairs, she stormed. What sort of a ship is this? There's that colored man upstairs asleep under the wheel, the doctor asleep down here, and you making pothooks in a copybook with a pencil. Expect the ship to steer herself to Brazil? We're just drifting around the sea like an empty bottle and a week behind time as it is. What's happened to you all? She was so angry that her voice rose to a scream, but it would have taken more than that to wake the doctor. I put the notebook carefully in a drawer and went on deck to take the wheel. End of Part 4, Chapter 2